Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Welcome to the Law School Lounge, everyone. This is your host, Crystal Norton. In this episode of the Law School Lounge podcast, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Carolina Academic Press author, Katie Rose Guest Pryle. Now, Katie is an author, a keynote speaker, a law professor, and she's an expert in mental health and neurodiversity. Our conversation touches a little bit upon pretty much all of these things. We talk about legal writing. We talk about pressures faced by law students. We talk about accommodations and accessibility in the classroom. We talk about being neurodivergent as a lawyer in law school and as an academic. We talk a lot about her books that range from fiction to nonfiction. It is such a wonderful conversation, and I can't wait for you all to dive in. As I said, she is an author of many books, and the one we talk about quite a lot in this episode, as it's a collection of essays that I read ahead of our meeting, is Life of the Mind Interrupted, Essays on Mental Health and Disability in Higher Education. Her upcoming book is A Light in the Tower, A New Reckoning with Mental Health and Disability in Higher Education. It comes out this year in 2023, and it builds off of some of the concepts and themes discussed in Life of a Mind Interrupted. Katie is also, as I said, a Carolina Academic Press author, and in our world, she writes books for legal writing with her co-author, Professor Alexa Chu, and we talk about her methods and tips for neurodivergent folks and professors who are teaching neurodivergent students in the world of legal writing. Of course, as I said, Katie doesn't stop there. She also writes fiction. She has a new series coming out, but the series that's currently available and is on my to-be-read list is the Ippy Gold Award-winning Hollywood Light series. It's a women's fiction series, a set of novels, As many of other Katie's works, because she herself is neurodivergent, the Hollywood Light series of women's fiction novels does center neurodiversity. So if you're looking for something with neurodivergent characters in the fictional realm, these might be good for you. Now, I really hope that you enjoy this discussion. We both get very personal and a little bit vulnerable at different times throughout our discussion. Due to the nature of my discussion with Katie, I do want to signal here that there is a content warning for this episode. We talk at length about mental health concerns and struggles. We do talk briefly about suicidal ideation and suicide. We also talk about issues of stress, 
and anxiety, particularly in the context of people who are neurodiverse and in the context of race and or gender. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but please know that we do talk about some really tough material, so listener discretion is advised for this episode. If you feel that you can't join us in the lounge for this episode, that's completely fine, and we'll catch you next time. If you're able to join us, I really hope that you take away something meaningful from this conversation and that you learn a thing or two. Now, on to the interview. Hello, everyone. We are here today with Katie Rose Guest Pryle, and she is here to talk to us just kind of about her journey in the academic space and outside of the academic space. We're going to talk about her work and all the important issues she talks about in her writing. And so, welcome, Katie. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. No, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. And I'm so excited to talk to you about your work because I was reading your, one of your most recent books, I believe, Life of the Mind Interrupted. It's not, but it is my most recent book that focuses on uh, disability and neurodiversity. Got it. Okay. That's what I was thinking of. Well, I like that it's a collection of essays and I like that it really tells me a lot about you. So let's just start off talking about you, if you don't mind. How did you find yourself working in or going to law school? Let's just start there. I am um, one of those people who tripped and fell into law school. I was finishing up my master's degree in creative writing, and I was living in Colorado, working as a ski instructor at Keystone Mountain in Summit County. That's really was, cool. It was great. Um, It was my second year there. And I didn't know what to do because the, uh, at Johns Hopkins, where I got my master's in creative writing, they had offered me a teaching position, teaching first year writing to their undergraduates, uh, which was, I didn't really understand what that meant to to, to have that job. I just knew it didn't pay very well. And the other option was to stay out West and uh, worked there in the summers and worked in the winters. And the summer job that I had gotten was to be uh, to work at the, the at the horse ranch that they have there in the summer for the tourists. And I I do horses, uh, so I, my title. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about horses later too, right? Because I know that you're working on different things related to horses and equestrian yeah. now, right? Correct. Um, and neurodiversity and 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 equestrian. Uh, community. Okay. So my title would have been Wrangler, which I think is outstanding. And then I would have been a ski instructor in the winter. But again, it, it, that didn't seem to be a career that was going to go places either. And so I just didn't, I was confused. And so, um, I just wandered into the LSAT. This sounds, this is, I have so many law students who have told me this same story. Um, (laughs) I just signed up for the LSAT one October and then I took it and then I applied and I applied to one law school, and that was UNC, and I got in. Um, I am a North Carolina state resident, so that gave me a little extra push. And I got in, and at the time, this was in the early 2000s, very early 2000s, tuition there was very inexpensive. Like, as I recall, it was less than 10000 a year. Wow. And so to accidentally go through law school back then um, did not break your bank. And so, uh, so I did that 
and I had, a, you know, I worked the whole time. So I did not graduate with this like debt that like buries you. Mm-hmm. So that's honest to God, the reason I went to law school, but <laughs> while I was in law school, I did, you know, first year was awful. Um, but then I started taking classes that were very interesting to me. And I learned a lot about, um, United States politics and history and things like that. And the sort of things that actually do interest me once you get to select your own classes. Right. And so constitutional law interested me a lot. I took a lot of con law adjacent classes. So that's how I ended up in law school was by accident um, because all the other pathways that I saw just didn't seem like a good idea. Right. I feel like there, those are two ways people end up in law school. Either they always knew they were going to law school or they had absolutely no idea and they just kind of ended up there. I was also in that latter camp. I took a business law yeah. course. I was a business law and Spanish undergrad. Uh, and I didn't, mm-hmm. oddly enough, I am an adjunct now, but at the time I was like, no teaching for me. That's not what I want to do. And I took business law, really enjoyed it, had a great professor at the University of Connecticut and said, I'm going yeah. to take the LSAT and go to law school and found myself moving yeah. to New Orleans. And I think that's kind of how some of the best things happen in most ways. I mean, I still live in Chapel Hill, just like you still live in New yes, Orleans. Like, exactly. this is- <laughs> yeah. It all happens yeah. how it's supposed to, right? Yeah. But I know it does. that you are a neurodivergent author yourself and mm-hmm. that you are bipolar and you're also autistic. And so was that something you had a diagnosis for going into law school and during law school? Or were these things that you were still figuring out while you were going to law school? I did not have a diagnosis of autism until I was in my early 40s. Okay. I did, uh, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder um, as I was finishing college. That is pretty common. Uh, uh, If one is lucky enough to have good medical care and family support, bipolar disorder tends to blossom as you enter Mm your 20s. So I had people around me who supported me and helped me. get good care. Other people, of course, blossom into their 20s with bipolar disorder and have no support and struggle. And that is awful. And I want to fix that. Um, So I have never had, I would say, serious, deeply serious struggles with bipolar disorder. You could sort of hold me up as the, the happy you know, ending that the thing that can happen with bipolar disorder, right? I, mm-hmm. I have had deep depression. I have had suicidal ideation and parasuicidal behavior, but I have not, you know, had to go into the hospital. I have not um, really struggled with my medication. I'm very lucky um, because I've, from the minute, you know, I started really struggling, I've had really good people in my corner and that, and I'm, and that just makes all the difference. But the things that I struggled with the most weren't inside me. They were external the uh-huh. you know the the structural challenges of of law school for example uh my master's program and then the doctoral degree i earned after there was a lot of flexibility there mm-hmm. so i could you know work when i needed to my courses i could sign up for to fit my sleep schedule and you need a lot of sleep when you have a mood disorder it's just like sleep is like there's like medication and then there's sleep. And sometimes the sleep is more important than the medication. Mm-hmm. If you're not sleeping, that's, that's a red alert. And so of course, law school, like 
you know, they hand you your schedule as a 1L and I had like 8 a.m. contracts and my, I had this ridiculous commute because they didn't have any parking and you had to drive an hour to park and ride and wait for the bus. And it was, it was, it was right. so frustrating to me <laughs> how poorly the logistics, how bad the logistics were. It's so different than like undergrad where it feels like in undergrad or something like that, everything's kind of set up for you, right? They kind of make it, but law school, they kind of toss them out there. They're usually not co-located with an undergrad campus. They're just kind of like out there doing their own thing. And so it does make it logistically much more difficult. It was hard. I would have yeah. just moved into the law school. I mean, honestly, I would have pitched a 10 out front. I don't, I don't know. I probably would have done library. I, <laughs> I should have. And they actually had showers. I mean, I don't, I just don't recommend, I do not think that law school as it is now is set up to be conducive to good mental health. Mm -hmm. And the statistics back that up. I mean, people go to law school and then, you know, the rates of depression and anxiety spike um, and it's terrible. I'm like, can we please, like, we have to just keep seeing these statistics year after year after year. And this is completely not related to COVID. If we add in COVID, it's terrible. Like, at some point, we have to do something about this. Again, this is something I'm working on. It's just not okay. And of course, the burden for caring for these law students who are suffering so much falls on, uh, disp- way disproportionately so, uh, faculty who are, like I was, I was legal writing faculty for my entire career, You know, the faculty who are underpaid, don't have job security, tend to be women, because of course women are wildly overrepresented in legal writing faculty, um, as are women of color, and of course all faculty of color across whether they are tenure to tenure or non-tenure track, they have the burden of emotionally supporting all students of color because there just aren't enough faculty of color for students to turn to uh, as as role models and support to understand what they're going through, which is a completely unrelenting and unfair burden to put on these faculty. So you have these students who are in need of support and they turn to the most vulnerable faculty for that support, the faculty who are most likely to get denied tenure, uh, most likely to not, you know, to have workload that is too heavy, that they can barely keep up with because everything rolls downhill to them. You know, if they're a non-tenure track, first year writing faculty, the workload is just sometimes it's just unbearable. Um, the hours I, I, I track my hours so much more grading. Oh my god! I tracked my hours one semester, and I was like, "Never do that again, Katie. You will just, you know, you, you think you have depression now. Jesus, don't ever do that." <laughs> I used a spreadsheet. I was like, I, I just know like how many how many hours per memo per this, and how many memos, and how many student conferences. And but I was, I just you don't even want to know how much I made per hour. It was crazy, <laughs> and so. Um, and, you know, at the time, UNC, you know, prided itself on paying us a, you know, a fair wage. Of course, it was one half or less than what a first year tenure track faculty made. But, you know, but whatever, you know, it, Neither here still, nor there, it was right? like, <laughs> I was like, it still worked out to $15 an hour. And I'm like, I could go be a barista. I mean, it, and be less stressed out. But okay, so anyway, so we have all these students who need all this emotional support, they turn to the faculty who have the least I'm buffered, you know, to deal with this, but that, but no one else is going to do it. And so we do that too. And uh, it's an unsustainable system became and the, and the visibility of this unsustainability, you know, was happened during COVID because COVID did squeeze us so much. And now we see how much our, our, our system 
can't handle this pressure. On right. our well, I mean, the profession is the same way, right? Yes. I mean, the legal profession isn't looking, it's not like this is something that just comes up in law school and then kind of tails off, mm-hmm. right? These are things that happen and progress into the profession. But I really appreciated your essay, what do psychiatrically disabled faculty owe their students? Yes. And I think that touches upon a lot of what you're saying and you give a lot of examples in there. And I think it comes from two fronts, the burden you're talking about as far as wanting to talk to students. So I will say that I myself, and one thing I want to talk to you about is your diagnosis journey Mm -hmm. because I'm kind of in that journey at the moment. Okay. Uh, I myself am softly diagnosed as a, um, with OCD. And I say that okay. because I have a therapist who is more in the counselor realm and so cannot yes. give me an official diagnosis, yeah. right? And I went to my doctors and my doctors were like, well, we don't really want to put that on your record. Okay. Uh, we don't necessarily want that to be associated with you when you seem like you're so high functioning, which (laughs) I know. And I was like, great, thank you. That's super helpful. I really appreciate that. Uh, and that actually, a lot of things you talk about in this book as well, kind of relate to issues with that sort of mentality. But before we get into all of that, you have a paragraph in this essay that I mentioned, uh, where you're talking about Tucker, which you're giving an example and it says, like Tucker, I too worked in a law school. Estimates put law students at a particularly high risk for depression and anxiety, around 40% according to one study. As far as I know, no faculty members in my department are open about their psychiatric disabilities, but chances are there were others besides me who had them. One thing I am certain about, when students come to you suffering with a psychiatric disability and you have experienced a similar kind of suffering, it is really hard to turn them away. Oh, yeah. And that's so true. It's not only that other people might be directly or indirectly putting this extra work on you, but you put the extra work on yourself, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Where exactly do you feel this sort of internal push to work with students in this capacity, where does it come from? Um, I think it comes from uh, what I said before about finding mentors who have similar life experiences to you. So I, I, this has happened just in the last year. Uh, I, I still teach occasionally as an adjunct at UNC Chapel Hill. I left full time in 2014. Mm-hmm. But students know that well, I mean, you have the book. I have another book coming out with the University Press of Kansas. And that's, it's not a follow-up, but it's on a similar, it's along a similar vein as as Life of the Mind Interrupted. And it's Got it. called A Light with Power, A New Reckoning with Mental Health in Higher Education. And in that book, I touch on some of the similar things, which is that if you're a student and you have autism or anxiety, OCD, a type of anxiety, you know, or bipolar disorder, and you want to know that it's possible for you to live a good life, be a lawyer, right? Um, And you know, there's a member of the faculty that seems to be thriving. You're going to go want to go talk to that person and, and find out how to make it. And so I've had colleagues come to me and say, I have a student who has bipolar disorder and he, she, they want to talk to you. Uh, and I never said no. Right. I am considering 
saying no in the future. When I, I've, I've shared my adult diagnosis of autism and someone, I had a, I was, someone referred someone to me, oh, you know, this person also is considering getting a diagnosis, getting going to be diagnosed as an, as an adult, late diagnosis of autism. This is pretty common among women right. because we were dramatically undiagnosed, underdiagnosed um, as and children. And unrepresented in studies, right? So like, yes, so it wasn't correct. really anything to diagnose you by, yeah. but yes. Correct. And so, and I thought, you know, I don't have time for, you know, I, I don't have, it's, it's the, there's so much you can give. There's only so much, right? Inside you that you can give to strangers about your, these personal, deeply personal and emotional things. And so what I said to this person was, would you mind emailing me a list of questions that you'd like to have answered? And then what I'll do is I'll write an essay answering all these questions, like deeply personal. I don't mind that. I don't mind writing these things. And then I'll publish it. And then for you, I won't mention your name, but I'll say thank you. And then you'll, you know, and then I'll share this with you. And then also the whole world can benefit from our conversation. And that's what I did. And it turned out to be this really great essay. The person who I emailed it with was actually really thought it was the greatest thing. Um, she was happy to be a part of something that helped people beyond just her. And so I think the next time I have a law student say, I'm terrified of trying to be a professional with bipolar disorder. I don't know what to do. I'm going to ask for something similar. I'm going to say, look, you can do it. You can. And now, why don't we do this? And if you feel comfortable. And so, because it is beyond just this one-on-one -on -one conversation, right. it reaches so too much further than that. And, and so that essay I mentioned is published on my website and it's called, why did I seek an autism diagnosis at 40 or something like that? That's a mentorship essay again for law students or just, you know, young professionals or something who are studying out and just don't know if it's even possible to live a good life with bipolar disorder. And the answer is hell yeah. Right. So, but I, I want to be able to reach more than just the one person at a time. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, I do say so. I think you're doing that with what you're already writing. And I think you can continue to do that with this sort of new mechanism you have to communicate with your students directly. I mean, I, so much of what you said in your essays really resonated with me in the fact that, and I know you're talking about it in your book in the context of academia, but, you know, I think it's also something that's very common in the legal profession. You mentioned in your book about the bar exam and character and fitness, mm. right? And I think a lot of that has changed in a lot of different ways for lots of different reasons, but it still is state by state specific. And, you know, I had... Yeah. I was in this class in Louisiana of students where uh, Louisiana has LAP, right? The lawyer assistance program. Mm -hmm. And Louisiana was well known for having some of the strictest sort of penalization of students who had any kind of anything in their background. Right. And by that, I mean, students who maybe had a very, very far removed misdemeanor or students mm. who had already had addiction and that addiction had already been treated and had already been addressed well before the person went to law school, it still would show up in their character and fitness and then result in that per person not being fully admitted to the bar, but being put on a probationary mm -hmm. status, mm -hmm. right? 
And that's really tough because then, you know, you talk a lot in your book about disclosure to other people. And when something like that is placed on you, it forces disclosure, right? Because you're going and you're seeking jobs, you're seeking positions and you have probationary status and you're forced into telling people why. (laughs) And that can be very, very difficult for a lot of different reasons. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on kind of those practices in relation to the bar exam and and where you think those can be improved upon. So it's in the book, I believe, but you didn't mention it. And that is that I failed the bar exam. Uh, The first time I took it, I also failed it the second time I took it, which was in February. I like to add a caveat, which is that I didn't actually study for the bar exam in February. Um, The reason I took, actually, I went in and took it, but there's a financial reason, because if you do not take it consecutively, then the, the fi- you have to start all over again. Um, and so you can just pay a fee and just keep going. And so instead of getting all of your, your recommendations again, you can, you have to resubmit your entire packet if Got you it. don't, this is, I don't know what the rule is now, but this is what it was back in 03, 04 when I was taking it. Okay. So um, now I did walk in in February, take it again, hope I passed. Um, but I didn't, um, not a surprise. And then I took it again the next year and I passed. Okay. So, but I, I definitely failed it twice. Okay. So there's no doubt. So I failed it in July after I graduated. It did not hurt me as much. It might've hurt others. I had a, I had a clerkship and so I was Uh, all right, but I will tell you, there is nothing quite like walking into the chambers of your federal judge and telling your judge that you failed the bar exam because I was ready to be fired. Um, I was ready to be humiliated. He's the nice man. Okay. I don't, but it didn't matter because the shame attached to failing the bar exam, Yes. the amount of shame that we attach to just about any kind of failure in law. I recommend an article by professor Casey Bishop on failure. Okay. If you just Google Bishop failure law, you'll find the article. It's fantastic. Uh, I think it's called Reframing Failure. I can't remember exactly the title, um, but just go read it, okay? Because we suck at failure, okay? Like the general law students, law professors, lawyers, okay? When failure is how we learn, and it, it like we, you know, we failed our way into penicillin, okay? Like we have to fail. <laughs> it's just <laughs> the thing, you know. There's so many stories like that in the history of humanity's like excellence is all these mistakes we've made that that created amazing things and so if if we don't try and fail then we will not become amazing at things because it means we're staying within this bubble of things that we already know how to do okay sure. so i feel the bar exam and it's one of the best things that ever happened to me because i would not be talking to you right now if i had i feel the bar exam and i learned the character and fitness questions are a complete disaster and harmful. And I wrote an article for Slate and it was one of the very first articles I ever published in a magazine. It was titled, The Worst Part of the Bar Exam. I got a lot of pushback, but I didn't title it that. <laughs> I don't know if that's what I would have called the article. But, I w- but it, was, um, it was about the character and fitness questions and so many people don't know about these, okay? Or right. if they're in law, they don't think about it. So it was the spring of my 3L year, I get my packet, of, you know, you have to fill out all this paperwork, right? And I and I'm reading through them, checking out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had like this horrible speeding ticket that was actually a misdemeanor, reckless driving. I was going. To, I was, that was the thing I was worried about. I was a maniac behind the wheel. And then, um, 
was and that and then, <laughs> I was like yeah we'll keep it there <laughs> and uh and I'm like oh gosh I have to get the citation and attach it and I'm like Egh. and so but then no that was not the thing I should have been worried about because I turned the page and it was like getting hit in the face with a bat okay mm-hmm. when I got to these questions and I'll I remember them verbatim do you have schizophrenia bipolar disorder or any other organic brain disorder. And I read that and I was like, I mean, this is, I'll never forget it. I was like, organic brain disorder. What the hell? They don't even know what they're talking about. Like has a, has a medical professional, this is from like 1940. No, a medical professional probably did not. No, organic brain disorder. What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. And I know what I'm talking about. And then that adds a whole nother layer, right? Because you're like, well, am I supposed to say yes? And and what if I I say no and I'm supposed to say yes? Like, and then what happens, right? Because that adds a whole, yeah. I mean, I have an inorganic brain. I don't even know. It's like I didn't, (laughs) it specified bipolar disorder. So I had to say yes. But the problem was, is then it was like, have you ever sought mental health care? And I'm like, I should stink and hope so. Um, In fact, if, 40% 40% of law students have depression or anxiety, man, we should all be seeking mental health care. And that's where the problem arises, is that these questions are on the bar and we know it. And now everybody knows it, okay, because it's become a thing. And so a lot of students come to me knowing that, oh, you wrote Life of the Mind Interrupted. You're that lawyer who knows about mental health stuff. Uh, you're that law professor, right? And they're like, I don't know if I should go seek counseling for my depression because then I'll have to put it on the bar exam. And so what these questions do, and this was what I wrote in this article, is they have the reverse effect. If what you want are a lot of really healthy lawyers, (laughs) then you need to not ask this question on the bar exam because it's having the opposite effect. You are pushing people away from seeking mental health care because you're scaring them to death with with these questions. And, and it's not just the questions, it's that, you know, you're forcing them to disclose that they sought help. Don't you want them to seek help? Well, and then they kind of, you know, like I was saying with like things like addiction, right? Then yeah. they use the, the help against you, they, right? right? They're like, oh, well, you sought yeah. help. And then- Like, yeah, I was an alcoholic and I went and got help for it. You know, I didn't exactly. ignore the problem. And so um, it, it's, it has the absolute reverse effect. Instead, I have students in my office whispering, I think I'm depressed, but I don't want to get help. You know, for each student who dies by suicide or tries to, we have thousands or more who are horribly depressed. That one student who died, that one tragic, horrible, completely preventable death, okay? There are so many students who are in crisis that we are ignoring. Okay, and something like these character and fitness questions on the bar exam are it's it's worse than ignoring. It's shoving this problem underground um, because uh, it's saying that um, if you are either neurodivergent or currently struggling with your mental health, then we don't want you and you aren't a part of our community. It is scapegoating. Okay. It is um, banishing all these words, these really old fashioned words, they apply here. It's saying, if we have problems in our legal community, it's because of you and we don't want you here. And that is exactly how I felt 
when I got that form. And I will tell you at that moment, when I filled out that paperwork, I completely disconnected from the bar exam. Wow. And I was depressed when I graduated and I felt like I didn't belong. And I went to Barbary and I just went through the motions and I walked into that. Uh, we, we took it, we took it at some com- conference center downtown in Raleigh, North Carolina. Right. And I, I felt, I mean, you know, you could say I had a chip on my shoulder, but it was more than that. It was like, I felt, why am I even bothering to do this when they don't even want me? And, you know, this sort of swirl of anxiety and sadness and grief and depression. And, you know, are we really surprised that I failed? Okay. And so I just tell this story every time someone asks me about law school and the bar exam. I have since written a book on, on taking the bar exam. Right. You know, I'm like really good at taking bar exams. <laughs> um, but the thing, it, the thing is, is like, it, nobody can be really good at anything if they feel like alienated and alone and unwanted. How You can't succeed under those circumstances. Sure, and especially if it places extra hurdles or barriers in front of you without anything having to do with you, right? They're just kind of barriers that are there that you have no ability to change. And, and I will say, so I went to college and I was like, there's like something weird going on here, but I don't really know what I'm supposed to do about it. So I'm just going to come up with different mechanisms and coping things, strategies to kind of work around them. Then I got to law school And obviously law school is a lot of pressure. It's a unique sort of circumstance. And I was a first gen student. And so it was particularly overwhelming for me. And I was in a new city. And I remember, you know, you do your character and fitness stuff usually in your 2L year, right? And I remember getting to the questions that you're talking about and thinking, thank goodness I didn't pursue that treatment. Thank goodness I didn't ever try to figure out what was going on. I just kind of was pushing through it. And that in and of itself, you know, at the time, it didn't really phase me because nobody was talking about these things. But looking back on it, that is incredibly sad Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, I was in kind of like the opposite situation to you. I was like, thank goodness I'm not in a situation where I have to disclose this. I don't have, I like, because I don't know what it is. I don't. I didn't have, wasn't ever on medication. I had never sought any sort of therapy or counseling. I just didn't have anything to disclose. Mm-hmm. And because I had that sort of safe Harbor, it carried with me. I eventually went into working with the federal government and, you know, you have security clearances and, and they ask all the same questions, mm-hmm. uh, even more. So they ask, they drug test you, they do all kinds of things. And so I never wanted to be put on medication because if I couldn't get my security clearance then I couldn't get, have my job literally. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, I can't lose my livelihood. And so right. I pushed it off and pushed it off. And now I'm about to be 36 and I had left the federal government right before the pandemic. And yeah. the whole pandemic thing really made me start to think like, I need to do something here. Right. And mm-hmm. so I'm kind of starting that journey now. And a lot of that really, quite frankly, has to relate back to the fact that I felt that I couldn't do anything about it sooner. Mm -hmm. And I felt Mm -hmm. that I would be lesser then. Or, you know, you talk a lot in your book about feeling as if you're going to be seen as a mad genius or the opposite, 
completely incapable of doing what you need to do because your your job relies so much on your brain. Yeah. And it's a scary situation to be in. It really truly is. And so I want to thank you for writing what you did in your book because I like I said it really it really gave me a lot of perspective and it was very meaningful for me. And I, I know there are other people out there who will feel the same way. Uh, but no, I, I think though the bar exam has changed, at least the character and fitness portion has gotten a lot better. I know that the federal government's per- position on those things have changed while I was working there. Right, right when I was about to leave, I actually, I was in such a tough spot. I went to my supervisor and was like, listen, I really need to go on medication. Yeah, <laughs> Like I, I can't, like I need something. And, and he was like, that's fine. And I was like, no, they ask you about it. And then they're going to make me pee in a cup. (laughs) And and he was like, Oh no, no, no. They just got rid of that pretty recently. Oh wow. Okay. And I was like, really? And he was like, yes. And I was so relieved the amount of relief I felt, but like, you know, that was really recent like 2017, 2018, I guess, like not far in our past. Mm -hmm. Um, And so things are changing, but I don't know if they're changing quickly enough, of course. I think the pandemic probably had a really big impact. Do you think so? I I do. I think, like I mentioned this earlier, that the pandemic squeezed us all, all institutionally, individually, um, in a lot of ways. And one of those ways has to do with mental health. And so. I mean, there's a Lancet study, it was a huge study, uh, where they looked worldwide at rates of depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And they, like country by country, I mean, it's a, it's just a huge study. And there's a, they have this really great, these really great maps of, um, of the whole, um, I'm happy to send you the citation so you can drop it in if that's a thing. Please, yeah, I'll put um, it in the notes. Okay. Um, so in, in the study, they, uh, it's a review of literature of everything that any, anybody's done on anxiety and depression during pandemic. And they looked at thousands of studies and the rates of increase of anxiety and depression country by country worldwide. And it's shocking. (laughs) So in, in in the United States, it's around twenty five percent increase of wow. both, and so uh, just during the pandemic. So we have hard data that rates of anxiety and depression, and and they define what that means. And it's really not it's not some like like it's a clinical definition of anxiety and depression. And they the, the you know imagine you know. 25% more people being depressed uh, and anxious uh, than, than, than were before. I think the regular rate of anxiety in the United States is around 18 to 19% of adults mm-hmm. at any given time. So, you know, that's almost like, it's almost half. I mean, that's at least one in three, right? Um, I no, can't do okay. math. That's why I went to law so, school. Um, that's fine. I, don't think that's, I don't think that's quite right. So it's 25% increase so that's not that's that goes up that raises that to 25 25%. okay i thought you meant like the original so, um, increase by 25 percent, but now it's like a quarter of the population at that time had it so it'd be like one in four yeah okay yeah, percent increase exactly so um and if the regular population if again so so it, you know it's a lot but it's a lot okay so that's just 
so many more people walking around depressed and anxious than, the, than there were before. If you're a teacher that's uh, of law students and 30% or 40% of law students are depressed, you know, that means that more than half your students mm-hmm. are depressed and anxious. Then that's not, and then you should look at like 60% or 70%. And there's a really good study um, that Mira Deo uh, did. Um, please correct my pronunciation um, on her on, on that name. She's led this longitudinal, like over many years study on um, law student mental health. And we're at like 70 or 80% now with um, mental health struggles with law students. And it's really high. And it's so like when you walk into the classroom, you have to presume that like all your students are struggling with their mental health. And that's how I teach now. And that's how, I, that's how I've been teaching for years. I, I try to improve every year. This is, I do not, I mean, it's <laughs> mental health and neurodiversity is what I do, right? I also right. occasionally teach law students. And so <laughs> I have to bring that other work, my main work with me went into my teaching. And so when I come into the classroom, I model for my students how to teach accessibly, which then means how to be, how to lawyer that way, how to supervise that way when they go out into the world, mm-hmm. how to treat their clients humanely. Um, yep. If, you know, something as simple as opposing counsel asks for an extension, don't be a dick and say, no, okay, this is very, this is stuff that people, (laughs) (laughs) I said, you know, and they're like, you know, and they say, of course I'd grant an extension. And I'm like, yes, but would your, you know, if you have a a partner who's like, no, you know, you're going to have to say, we're going to grant them an extension. It doesn't matter. You know, it's fine. Um, And, and, and then, we're not going to aggravate the judge by being, you know, a hard ass about something that's meaningless. Um, it's fine. And so, you know, we're not going to be that, that guy who says yeah, those people, it's just really dumb to not do that. And so, um, and, but, but more importantly, um, it's humane. And so, I mean, on, on some level, if we could just all treat each other with, with humanity, like humanely, um, then I wouldn't need to fight for accessibility. Like my fight for accessibility for neurodivergent people, uh, would like drop by like 80%. But unfortunately we don't do that. Um, we're, we treat people like work. And so I have Before to spend you continue, all my time. Let's, let's define <laughs> accessibility and neurodivergency, sure. because I think that that will provide context, right? One thing I really liked about your essays is when you did a comparison between accessibility and accommodation and how those things have different meanings. And you also define neurodiversity. So before we continue down this very important conversation we're having, let's just do a little bit of a breakdown on the terms we're using. So what exactly would you say or qualify as accessibility? So there are two terms we use to talk about uh, making things equal for disabled people. And one of them we've heard a lot in law school. If you're a lawyer, you hear about the term, the word accommodations, right? right? The long, complicated word. It's got two C's and two M's. And I, you know, I mentioned in the book, you know, I had to learn how to spell this in disability law. It took me a long time. It's like so long and cumbersome. And it is cumbersome. Accommodations. God, they're hard to get. <laughs> they are. It's a big um, process. It's changed and it changes a lot. Yeah, you got to keep getting them every mm-hmm. year. You got to keep going back. You got to keep, you know, they they run out. Okay. 
the cost of getting accommodations is an actual another level of discrimination. And there's a great article by Professor Catherine McFarlane called Accommodation Discrimination. Okay. And it goes through the cost to disabled people that the amount of time, energy, and money that they have to spend to get accommodations to make it possible for them to function in the world with a disability. It's not enough that they're disabled. Okay. The accommodations themselves are also disabling. Okay. It's, it's an excellent article. Okay. So accommodations and accessibility are not the same thing at all. They mean completely different things. Most people think they are the same thing. They are not the same thing. Right. So accommodations, they are special exceptions made for one disabled person. And that disabled person has to jump through hoop after hoop to get them. And those hoops include expensive medical tests. Uh, they include ex- uh, releasing all of your your medical records to people you'd rather not see them, okay? Signing away expansive. When I took the bar exam, for example, and I had to share all of my medical records with these strangers on the North Carolina uh, bar, uh, bar examiners. That you'll never see and never meet. I mean... Or I would. would. What if they're it's true? They could be like bar. your neighbor and you just don't even know. Yes. Yeah. And so that was another thing, this invasion of privacy. So you have this immense cost of all this testing that to prove that you're disabled, the invasion of privacy and the time spent, okay? And that's accommodations. Accommodations are necessary because they're built into our system, but it sucks, okay? Accessibility means that We have created a space that is hospitable to and welcoming to and usable by disabled people all the time. And there are no hoops required. It just is. It's just, it's just usable. I can come on in. By anybody, right? By anyone. Yep. And walk in and, and, and be disabled and be there. I say accessibility is for everyone. That's it. Okay. And then most, like, if you think about the classroom, so to get accommodations as a neurodivergent student, you have to spend between three to $5,000 on testing. Okay. And those tests last five years. Okay. Schools require new ones every five years. So if you were like a sophomore in high school and you had your psych educational testing done at your psychologist back home and your parents forked over $3,000 to have it done, by the time you're a know sophomore or junior in college those have expired for some reason now you're no longer um say autistic it just you just ran out of autism okay you ran out of adhd (laughs) or whatever and so you have to have them done again okay i didn't know that oh yeah 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 and so they so to even get an appointment to have that done because it takes like like multiple days to have this testing done it's like eight hours of your life it's like months out to schedule these things. I know because I've done it lots of times. And so then it's thousands of dollars. Okay. And then let's back way up and think you have to know that you need to do it in the first place. Maybe you just think reading's really hard for me, or I just, I'm just not that good of a student. I just, you know, it's easy for them to memorize things and it's hard for me. And you don't think, oh, maybe you have executive functioning challenges and, and your working memory isn't so great. Right. Like, 
mind stinks. I've never been able to cram for an exam because I don't have working memory. It's terrible. And that's a function of autism. It just is. And anxiety and lots of things. Yes. So, yes. (laughs) So, in your classroom or in your workplace or anywhere you are, there are going to be people who are disabled, neurodivergent, okay, who know they are have afforded the testing, have jumped through all the hoops, have decided it was worth it to share all of their personal private information with total strangers in your HR department who may or may not gossip about you by the water cooler in the bathroom and got accommodations that may or may not be helpful because honestly, what kind of accommodations are you going to get in a law firm? I don't know. I can't think of anything that would be actually useful. In law school, what they give you, they give you time and a half on your exams. Yes, super. That's what they. Yeah, okay. that's what they always gave. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Uh, you, you like the way I feel about law school exams is that they should be all be on time. We'll talk about. Oh, that. that's I, yeah. That's an interesting. I I've I've since switched from the timed something or other to the untimed, yes. and I you know I I really the the conversation around accessibility isn't interesting one. And I felt like I finally reached in my teaching, at least as an adjunct, uh, yeah. true accessibility when I had a student who had needed accommodations. Uh, and I realized I didn't have to change anything I was doing because everything I did already meant that they had everything that would have reached them through accommodations. Uh, and I was like, you know what, that's, I'm really proud of myself for that. But that is the exception not the rule as far as teaching comes. Though I think that's changing as well, but it, you know, slowly. It's not. No, it's not. It's not, no. no. Do you think it's a law school thing it's not changing in or do you think it's a general? No, I think most professors professors still cling to the idea that if they let go of things that their classes won't be rigorous. Uh, Yes, yes, I think that's fair. Yes, I I agree. So, no, like the time test thing, right? And by the way, I will say this. There's no such thing as perfect accessibility because even something that, that, that is, makes some, a place accessible for one person can actually cause it to be inaccessible for someone else. So there is, it is this is a, a project that's doomed to fail, but it's worth doing anyway. Okay, so like, this, is, this is one of those things. We're never going to reach a utopia. Well, there's no perfection, right? I mean, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But we're going to do it anyway. So, um, for example, people with autism really struggle with open-ended tasks. Ah. Okay, they tend to. Things without deadlines. If, okay, so a lot of people with neurodiv- certain types of neurodivergence, if you don't give us a deadline, we don't do it. Okay? I'm like, I'll put it off forever. Okay, but at the same time, it is super useful to grant people extension. Okay? so do both. Okay. So you can't, so some teachers say, I'm totally accessible. I don't have deadlines. And I'm like, well, see, that's, that's disabling for a lot of students. You can, you can have deadlines and grant extensions. You can do both because the deadlines help students plan and the extensions help students who struggle, who have struggled because of whatever reason it does not matter, meet that deadline. So you have a non-punitive extension but you also have to. I love that idea. This is where things get complicated, right? No, and the and the tests that that have no time limit, right? So you can say this is a test that is perfectly capable of being done 
in four hours. And it better be, okay? Capable of being finished in four hours. However, if you are someone who take, who, who take long, if you're a person who takes longer on tests, then it's a six hour test. Right. So don't give no time, right? Give guidance with time, reassuring people with time, okay? Be reassuring. Well, and I think maybe like to, based on what you're saying anyway, explaining that to students up front at the beginning of your class as well is really helpful. So for example, with you talk about the deadlines yeah. uh, and extensions, I'm like, I'm like all the extensions, like I'm totally fine with extensions in my classes. And I tell my students at the beginning, because the reality is a lot of students have so much anxiety and stress and it makes it worse for them if they have to ask for an extension because at some point inevitably in their past they've had to ask for an extension and they've gotten a nasty rude demeaning sort of response right so I'm like I tell them up front here's your deadline please try to get it in by the deadline as best as you can because like it saves me a headache I don't have to worry about what you're doing and like not grading or whatever but I understand your people, I'm people, right? We have things that come up, just communicate with me. And and they do, right? And they, it makes them feel like they have a space to do so. Uh, but you have to accommodate for those things too, because if you don't, it could, like you said, make things that seem like a great idea, not such a helpful tool. All of your students have been smacked down. You have to presume. All of your yes. students have been smacked down asking for extensions. And um, Sarah Schendel, who is a law professor, um, wrote a great article about teaching extensions to law students because learning how to ask for an extension is an important uh, skill mm-hmm. for lawyers. It's important lawyers sure. because we yeah. file for extensions constantly. Oh and yeah, so all the time. If, if you're <laughs> going to teach, if you're going to require deadlines, then you have to also teach how to ask for an extension. You have to do both. You can't just have deadlines and then expect students to sort of manifest the ability to ask for extensions. Most of our students don't know how to do that, actually. They, that, and then they end up like the day it's due, right? And coming up to you and saying, I didn't finish it. And then we complain to each other. Uh, can you believe a student showed up and, and asked and said, asked for an extension on the day it was due? How unprofessional is that? I'm like, of course, that's what they did. And of course, they acted unprofessionally. They're not professionals because we didn't teach them any better than to do that. be a professional. Yeah, they're right. So Who would have taught them how to ask for extensions? Well, by the time they make it, no, no, shut up. Okay, listen, it's your job. If you're going to have them have a deadline, then you have to teach them how to ask for an extension. It takes five minutes, okay? So Sarah Schendel, and I can't remember the title. Again, if you just write, Google her name, uh, and the word I'll put something in the notes too, because all of these resources you're throwing out are so great. They're all going to be in the notes. Oh, great. Her article is so great. I, it's all over my, my new book. I, it was, everything in it is fantastic. And so, and she, it seems so obvious now that I say it out loud. And when I read it, I was like, yeah, you know, these, these fumbling requests for extensions, that's the best they can do. They're not screwing around. They're just bad at it. And so we have to help them be good at it. And so, I mean, it's not, they're not being evil, you know, masterminds trying to manipulate us. They are inexperienced. So it's our job to teach them how to be better. And And I want to like say that that's not just a law school thing. That's a a work life thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because whether or not, you know, you end up out in the world and you're working with your boss, say, and you're, 
coming up against a bunch of deadlines, you need to be able to prioritize those deadlines, communicate yeah. that to your employer. So this is just a, a life work skill that yeah. all teachers should be teaching. I'm 100% on board with you. And that is what she says in this article is that, you know, don't mistake teaching deadlines, the idea of teaching them to blow through, you know, teaching extensions, teaching them to blow through deadlines. That's, it's the opposite of that. You're teaching them how to prioritize, how to determine, you know, how to how to plan their time and all these things. It all works together. The extension is just one part of planning uh, projects and things like that. And it, it's a it's a wonderful way to think about how we use our time. The extension is only one key in 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 time management. And of course, what I was saying before is that time management doesn't come naturally to everybody. And some, some students are, and lawyers and people are really, really good at time management the day that they're, you know, spat out of the womb. And some people aren't, and they're naturally really bad at it. And so they get sucked into things. This is me. You know, I'll, I'll start working on something and I get hyper-focused on it. And then three hours go by and I've missed a Zoom call with um, this Norton person and I, you know, <laughs> completely just forgot. And I, you know, I'm like really sorry. And so as, and then, you know, and I, I'm sitting at my desk with Zoom open and I, I just right. didn't happen. <laughs> so, and and, and I got, it doesn't matter how many alarms I set, it, you know, I have all these things, you know, sometimes I just tell my husband the most important things on my calendar and he calls me on the phone. His um, alarms work, you know, <laughs> his challenge. he calls me, he goes, don't forget, you have a podcast recording in 20 minutes. And I'm like, oh, crap, I was <laughs> reading this book for my research. And I, you know, I just, you know, that's the, that's what happens when you're really good at zoning in on something. The whole world falls away. And in some ways, that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. And other ways, it's a challenge. Um, so uh, you just everybody's different and we all have our strengths and our weaknesses and we have to learn how to work, work with those and appreciate them as well. Yeah. And and that's what accessibility does, right? It accounts for and encourages and makes a space for people to learn that about themselves and do so in a way that is conducive to being a professional and doing what they want to do. And so I guess my other question is related to defining neurodiversity in relation to accessibility and all these things. Because when you were just talking about your hyper-focus, I do, I do get hyper-focus, but my real thing is that I, no pun intended, obsess over not being late. And Mm. so I have a problem where I get somewhere an hour early just to Mm. make sure that I'm not late. And all my friends tease me. They're like, why? Why are you at your interview an hour early? And I'm like, well, because I can't miss it. What if I miss it? What if, what if I hit a bunch of traffic and I, I can't get there and then I have to go and I have to go now and I have to sit there and I'll just sit in the parking lot. It's fine. It's totally fine. And they're like, okay, this is not fine. <laughs> Whatever this is, is not what normal people do. And they, and that yeah. alone has its own problems by saying what's normal. It's not, but well, neither here nor there. But my point is that, you know, accessibility would accommodate both of us. It would make space for both of us to do whatever we need to do in order to work within our own parameters. But neurodiversity looks different on different people. Um, And I think there's a lot of, I guess I asked you kind of what you would define neurodiversity as, because I think there's a lot of discussion right now. And kind of this happens whenever something like this 
evolves as like, oh, well, that's not really neurodiversity or that is neurodiverse, right? And so what would you say (laughs) is the general sort of consensus right now on what neurodiversity is? Well, I would say there's no consensus, but I can tell you a lot about the definition. Okay. Okay. So to me and to most dictionaries, uh, neurodiversity refers to the range of differences in brain function and behavior that are part of the normal variation in the human population. So range of differences in brain function and behavior that are part of the normal variation in the human population. So the point there is that it's, there's diversity in plants, you know, and there's diversity in this. Okay, and so this is all, so that among humans, there is variance and that variance is normal, okay? And that's the, that's the important thing to hear there, okay? I like that. Um, the Cleveland Clinic, which is a nice source, you know, we like them, they're smart, defines neurodivergent this way. Um, it's a non-medical term that describes people whose brains develop or work differently for some reason. Okay. This means the person has different strengths and struggles from people whose brains develop or work more typically. Oh, more typically. Okay. There is no typical. There's just more typically, less typically. Okay. So, but the history of the word neurodiverse, neurodiversity, okay, um, goes back to 1998 and 1999. Uh, a woman named uh, Judy Singer, she's Australian. She was a sociologist and she coined it specifically with regards to autism. Right. Um, okay. And so that actually explains because a lot of times that's what I hear that if correct, the only people who are quote neurodiverse are people who that's are right. On the and so spectrum. it was a portmanteau of neurological diversity, neurodiversity. Okay, that seems pretty obvious. She was specifically referring to autism spectrum or autism at the time. ASD did not exist. Um, the deal is though uh, that. Today, you have some people who are autistic who claim the word who claim the word neurodiversity for autistic people only. I am mm-hmm. autistic. I believe the word is much broader than that. I'm not saying the dictionary or the Cleveland Clinic have the final say about things. I think that we do, um, people who are neurodivergent. Um, and so, as a neurodivergent person, I believe that the word is expansive. I want I I am expansive and generous with my use of the word. Okay. Uh, so people with mental disabilities, psychiatric, uh, disabilities, um, developmental disabilities. Uh, so it spans bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder, ADHD, autism. Um, it, it fits it, everything fits under the umbrella. You know, if it's a, in a deviation from some kind of socially constructed norm, then we're talking about neurodivergent. Okay. Okay. I think that's really a great way to put it. And I appreciate you going into that detail and a little bit of the history, because I think that actually at least helped me at least understand why I always kind of hear that particular debate point that neurodiversity refers specifically to people who have ASD and not necessarily anything else. But I mean, just as all language, right, we're going to get very philosophical with it here, but all language evolves over time as do definitions. So it makes sense that 
its concept and its reach would change with time as, as more information kind of comes out about these topics. And so, you know, for obviously I work for Carolina Academic Press and for us, you work on a lot of great writing tools in relation to Core Grammar for Lawyers and the complete writing series for legal writing at different stages of your academic career or just your endeavor to become an attorney. And so I'd like to switch gears just a little bit here and ask you, one, the first question, what do you have to offer for neurodiverse people while they're writing? Like what kinds of tips or anything that they could think about as they're writing? Because I love legal writing myself and it's something that I was always good at. And I think in part, it's because you can do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, just kind of tips or tricks that you have for neurodiverse people when it comes to writing and legal writing. But also, if you could just discuss how your writing and your books with Carolina Academic Press are accessible to people with neurodiverse backgrounds, how do they incorporate those elements? I'd like to answer the second question first. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So my uh, complete series for legal writers that I wrote for CAP with uh, co-authored with Professor Alexa Chu. Right. Uses a method called genre discovery. I recently, this year, this year uh, published an article called genre discovery 2.0. It came out in the Barry Law Review, like just now, uh, like this month. Um, Thank you. It's a follow-up from the first genre discovery article that I published 10 years ago. And so, um, and what genre discovery is in a nutshell is when you are, well, it's a method for learning how to write, teaching yourself how to write any unfamiliar document. And in particular, in this case, any unfamiliar legal document. So rather than teaching students particular document types, like you're going to learn the memo and the appellate brief and the letter or whatever, we we teach them those, the book, and, and then we use the book at Carolina. We do teach those genres, but we teach students how to learn those genres. And so then they can take the skills that they have learned using this technique, this method, okay, and go out into the world and learn how to write anything. Uh, so, and it, it basically goes like this. You have to write a, pick something. I always say bankruptcy brief because that was, that's what actually happened to me. Well, I was gonna say, well, that sounds like so much fun. I was on the bankruptcy moot court team, and so that's great. I wasn't, and so when I was a summer intern, uh, that was my first writing assignment. And I was Ooh. like, what? What is bankruptcy? So yeah. I didn't even know anything, and so I was like, uh, and, and it's I had like two days to write this bankruptcy brief for the, or it was a, you know, a sort of wasn't a, a it was for the bankruptcy court. Bankruptcy so it was like court, a yeah, federal. It was bankruptcy. Like a, um, mm-hmm. It was to support some sort of oral argument. I don't know. I, I had to write this thing. And so I'd never heard of it before. And so I was completely stressed out. And I did what I would have done if I were learning how to write a Sistina or some strange poem. I asked for some samples. And I said, I, I got to read some of these things. I don't know what they are. And so I asked the 
legal secretary to help me out. I said, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me find some of these in our files? And so I grabbed like 10 of them and I laid them across the uh, conference room table. This was like at eight o'clock at night. I was totally embarrassed. And I, and I read them all. Okay. And I laid them all out so I could see them with my eyeballs. And I looked at what was similar among them all. And I also like it. Okay. Yeah. And so this, these are go buys, right? I mean, but this is, but you, you know, this is more than a go buy because I didn't have any idea what the document was, what the document type, that's what a genre is, the document type. Okay? okay. And I was like, okay, so this looks like a thing that has this part and this part and this part and this part. Okay. And it looks like the purpose is to do this thing. Okay. This is the reason why we're writing it. It looks like the audience is this kind of judge, right? And then the, and this person wants to see it this way. And so I made a lot of notes and then I took all this data that I had gathered by basically studying all these samples and wrote one. I didn't have any, there's no, I didn't have a guidebook on how to write this type of document. I made my own. Okay. Wow. I just took notes. Okay. That was genre discovery. I just hacked my way through it. It took a long time. <laughs> okay. So, um, so then I went and got a PhD in rhetoric. Okay. Composition and rhetoric. That's a mm-hmm. thing. So you can, you can do that. So I went and did that after law school. And what I learned in studying composition and rhetoric is that there's a thing called a genre and a genre <laughs> has a thing where you write a document that exists in the world before you like a bankruptcy brief and that they get written a lot. Okay. So they have certain types of things that make them what they are okay. and you can study those and then you can write them. Okay. This is, so this is not a thing you have to reinvent. Okay. So you can teach people how to write using this method. Okay. You can, you okay. can teach students to study a thing. You can teach them how to do that thing that I did. Okay what to look for, what's important, what's not important, how to even find the samples themselves. I asked mm-hmm. my paralegal, to help, not mine, but a paralegal, begged her to help me find them. <laughs> I didn't know how to do that. Okay. Well, how do you find the samples? How, what, when you look at them, what are you looking for? And then how, and then you can create your own, not a template, but basically your own sort of structure that you can then write your document. Okay, so we teach our students, this is what the book teaches. So what's so great about this process is that each writer, each learner in law school or people who use this book in practice, each each learner or writer gets to make sense of the documents their way. There is no, here's the one way to write a memo and here here are these very specific instructions. Well, if those step-by-step instructions don't make sense to you, then you're stuck, okay? What's nice about genre discovery is that the steps are what you make them. Uh, it it's, might sound open-ended and stressful when I describe it to you right now, and it kind of is a little open-ended the first time you encounter it as a student. And so it is scaffolded, the, the instructions for professors is to scaffold this process for students as much as they need it. And there are very good instructions for how to do that. Um, In fact, I improved those instructions in this genre 2.0 article, a genre discovery 2.0 article. I said, I should have provided more scaffolding in the last (laughs) one Um, because there should have been. And, And so after teaching with it for a decade, I said, look, you know, if you teach with this, you don't need the book to teach with it. Ideally, you use the book because the book's pretty great. Um, and so in the second edition of the book for CAP, 
we added in more scaffolding. Got um, okay. And so, and so that um, so that the first time students use this, these students, a lot of whom have been taught in a certain way, this very didactic, you know, what Paolo Freire called the banking method, where I basically the professor basically like shoves information into their heads. And instead, you know, and that only works for certain types of learners, whereas this is much more inductive. And so I can learn the way that works for me and you can learn the way that works for you. And everybody gets to learn the way that works for them. And the method, and you develop your own method for learning how to write legal documents that works for you. And it's it's up to you. And then the professor's there to, you know, keep you on the right track. So, okay. I so this is, I mean, I'm like, I have like the most neurodivergent brain. This I could not, if you had handed me, <laughs> you know, if you had handed me, and in fact, I did not do well in my legal writing class. I come in with a master's degree from like the number, I think it was the number two program in the country with a nonfiction yeah. degree, okay, writing degree. And I got like a C in my legal writing class. I could not follow it <laughs> at all because it didn't make any sense. Um, and so it was really important to me that that not be the case for students uh, for, for students that use my book. I like that a lot. I just had a conversation with uh, Tanya Monasir and then another conversation with Shalini George uh, for this podcast. And one of the things we all kind of mentioned, even though separately, is that you learn a lot about yourself when you're going through law school. Mm-hmm. And you ultimately come up with ways to reach your end goals mm-hmm. through your own means and that work in a nice way for you. And so I think that it's really cool that genre discovery builds that in and encourages it because I think it's something that you need to learn in law school on how to work on your own or how to accommodate yourself in a way that works best for your brain and how you think and actually what is successful for you because what's successful for you won't be successful for someone else. And so the fact that that's built in is really cool. I know that this has been said to be very good for English learners as well, right? Yeah. Yes. And why Why is that in particular? Any particular reason why? Well, uh, Craig Smith and Alexa Chu wrote an article for Perspectives uh, Magazine about that. And I'm going to allow them to explain it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, my first question, right? So let's circle back. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your creative process and it's Something that you talked about sounds like genre discovery is your creative process. Is that fair to say? For legal writing, it is, yes. Yeah. And what about, I know you write, okay, so I'm a Kindle Unlimited gal, and I now have your, it's Hollywood Light series, right? It is. <laughs> I now have your fiction, because you not only write nonfiction and, and textbooks, you also write fiction. Uh, they are all now on my TBR and I cannot wait to dive in. Uh, so what does your creative process for the fictional space look like? Um, well, I, it's funny. I write similarly for fiction and nonfiction. The, so I write trade nonfiction and I write novels. I'm currently writing a novel and a trade nonfiction book at the same time. Um, I, I find it useful to have different things for my brain to work on, but the heart the biggest challenge is for me is making space in my life um, because mm. I'm a mom with two kids, a homeschool, and I have a full-time job as a writer and a speaker. And I, and I do a lot more than 
than just write books. And it, although <laughs> writing books is the most important thing I do. So, um, but it, it somehow it keeps getting pushed to the side and it's very difficult for me right now. So I think that the most important thing for, for anybody's creative process is to find the time and, and protect that time. Um, and if you are someone who struggles with anxiety or depression or, you know, even just uh, any, any kind of uh, lack of belief in yourself or the importance of what you are doing, it can be really hard to prioritize that time because you will keep believing that something else is more important. Um, but it's not. And so you have to prioritize that time. But when I do prioritize that time and sit down to write, I will, if I hit the zone, it's really wonderful because I will sit down and I will just write and it's great. And then three hours, three hours will pass and I'll come out um, and I'll have done a whole lot. That's when that hyper-focus is a real asset, right? Yeah, it is. It's really <laughs> wonderful. Um, but I do have to get there. And it's, um, and that can be hard when, uh, there's a lot of things tugging at me, um, and needing my attention. So, uh, it's, 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 so it's difficult. I, so I do find myself needing the space and time space, like a room of one's own kind of space, space and time to be able to dip into that, that kind of zone. Um, Apparently Jane Austen just sat in a, like a family room with like her nieces and nephews, like yanking on her skirts. And she wrote Pride and Prejudice like that. And I can't wow. even imagine. Okay. <laughs> Hard pass I'm like, over here. I'm, I'm, I'm like, good. <laughs> no, I, I'm more of an Emily Dickinson, uh, you know, like leave me alone in my cottage. So it's, yes. it's but, but, um, I do, I do like to take walks and to do things and, and, and stay, uh, you know, keep the blood flow. I do like coffee shops. The, a lot of people who, um, have, who are neurodivergent will find the, the low level noise of a coffee shop, the distraction, uh, soothing. Yeah. I always have headphones on. Yeah. Well, I, I like, I like the sort of, the sort of, um, mindless chatter it shuts down the mindless chatter right. that's going well, on no, inside my head. And so then I can <laughs> Sorry, I should have been more clear. I meant yeah. like uh, when COVID happened and couldn't go out, uh, I realized mm. that I missed. That's why I got so into podcasts because I would just have podcasts playing all the time in my headphones because it was so quiet. I couldn't work. Yeah. Yeah. There's an app that will play coffee shop noises actually in your headphones. And it just sounds like you can say Parisian coffee shop or Italian coffee shop or small college town coffee shop and they're all different. Oh, I like it's that. Great. And so <laughs> have to check um, it out. Yeah. Like coffee, coffee, something anyway. So, and, uh, and so I have, I have used those and it's sometimes at a coffee shop and the, it's the vibe isn't quite right in the coffee shop. And I'll listen to the coffee shop noise app. <laughs> that's, that's even, that's even extra for me. So some of the harder things are, um, you know, fear of failure and rejection, um, can be really difficult if, that's something that is, is hard for you. Um, so you have to keep taking risks. Writing is just constant risk taking. It is also requires a, just an unshakable belief that what you're doing is important because you're getting no feedback, none for like weeks on end, sometimes years. And so you have to just keep going, even though there's no external uh, feedback that what you're doing matters or is good or is important. 
And so for that reason, I actually suggest that people create a community. You don't need, I'm not talking about like, you know, um, these like French salons in, in the, you know, modern period. I'm talking about like just one person is enough, maybe two people and they don't even have to be nearby. You can, you can be like your college friend who lives, you know, three States away, but somebody that you can check in with and say, I'm alive and I'm still writing things. And that person's like me too. I'm also alive and still writing things and, and you're not alone. And so uh, it helps if they also are uh, neurodivergent. Sure. So you can say things like, I'm feeling really dark today. And, and, you know, and they can say, oh, I'm dark too. Or I'm not dark, but uh, I'm sorry you are. And they know what you're going through. Or like, I'm losing track of words. Uh, and I don't know why. Or I can't sleep. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. And so so they they know what your struggle's like. That's good. So I, I'm actually currently um, working on <laughs> rebuilding this community um, after some changes I made in my life. And I'm deliberately sending out emails and making Zoom appointments with all these different colleagues and friends of mine who are writers. They write all different things. It doesn't matter. I, I just want someone I can say, can you Zoom with me today? Because I am like totally uh-huh. stuck. Um, or can you just talk on the phone? I'm like, and, and I just need, because I miss having this just community right. of people to um, bounce ideas off of. And I, I just fell away even though these are people who live nearby, it still fell away during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't that like, uh, I want to say it's ADHD that they are their most productive when they have like a body double. Isn't that Mm -hmm. right? Like, so, you know, okay, let's be fair. I learn a lot of this on TikTok, but they uh, sit in Zoom rooms to work during the day because it keeps them on task and on track to like see someone else doing it and keep them in the same vein, vein. and I, so I couldn't think of it would be helpful. Co-writing, yeah, co-writing. <laughs> that sounds much better than body doubling. <laughs> it's not, it's not ADHD. It's, it's, it's people who have trouble with any kind of focus or even like self-regulation. EF yeah, executive functioning, that sort of thing. And so that's also autism, but it's also anxiety. Yes. They're all, all three of those things, they overlap a lot, okay, in the middle. And inside that overlap is like, if you sit next to me here and I sit here, we don't even have to talk to each other and we just work. It's great. Okay. And sometimes my husband who does work, a lot of work from home in the evenings, he'll sit at one end of the dining room table. I'll sit at the other end and just having someone else working is a huge help. Um, Cause then you're less apt to noodle around and like just, <laughs> and, and, and so we call it co-working or co-writing. And sometimes it will say, if, if it's one particular friend, I'll say, okay, I'm going to spend the next 30 minutes doing this. And she'll say, and, and then there's accountability, which is really mm-hmm. great. But, but we, I have, we have turned on, I, there is a, there's a Zoom group that I do with, and that someone runs a timer and there's a little chat and, and then, and then we're just like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then the timer runs and it's a 30 minute timer. And then we all come back and like, I totally ended up folding laundry, <laughs> <laughs> but I did something, but, <laughs> but, but I have actually found it to be really helpful. I know that at this time on this day, I'm going to write for these two hours and it's, so it's useful. So there's lots of tools out there if you struggle. I mean, but look, this is useful for all writers. This is accessibility for everyone. Yeah. Right? Um, so, uh, but I, these are things that I, I find useful. I should probably write them down and 
in like a listicle and publish them. Yeah, I I would read that article in a heartbeat. Let's get on that. That could be your next essay that you need to help your students with. Well, I, one more time, just want to say thank you so much for your time and for sharing so much of yourself. I know that you talk a lot about disclosure in your book and disclosure is a obstacle. It's something that takes a lot of time and a lot of thought and a lot of care. And so thank you so much for sharing with me today. And in general, the only other thing I really want to talk about is I want to hear about what you're doing next. So what is all this fun stuff you're working on now? Okay. So the the book in production is A Light in the Tower, A New Reckoning with Mental Health and Higher Education. And that's coming from Kansas Press in the spring, early spring. And I'm expecting my copy edits any day now. And then the the novel I'm working on is is the first of a series. It's a mature young adult series, which means like yeah, like they call them what like NA now, like new adult. No, it's below NA. Okay, above. It's not fourteen to sixteen. This is like sixteen to eighteen. It's Uh, it's, I don't know. These categories are hard, and this is where you let your agent do the talking. But anyway, it's mature, it's mature YA. Okay, that's what it's okay. called. And so, um, and it's set at a boarding school. They're seniors in high school. That's how old they are. Seniors in high school. Okay, and so it's paranormal. Uh, it's romantic paranormal. Like, you know, and and so it's, it's like a haunted boarding school story. It's really great. And I live in New Orleans. I'm all over that. I mean, come on, yeah, that's, yeah. that sounds awesome. It, it's a little Southern Gothic, a little, a little paranormal. It's, it's fun. And so about done with the first, I'm actually going to write, sketch out the whole series before I finish like the first book. Cause okay. I don't want I, nothing worse than like waiting 18 years for the next book. To come out. <laughs> I think I want to have them ready to go. And then the nonfiction book that I've almost finished is uh, called mom interrupted. And it is, that's, that was the title. It's a, it was a series of essays. It was a column I had in a catapult magazine. So a catapult, honestly, it just closed and it was such a lovely magazine, just delightful, glorious magazine. And I hate that they closed. They also have a, a press. So it's catapult.co.com. And so it was a, a, a column called mom interrupted. And I wrote, I don't know, 10 pieces over the course of, you know, year and a half. And it's about being a neurodivergent mom of neurodivergent kids. And so from that, I have built a book and that's the book. I don't know if that'll stay the title. That's the title for now because it was the title of the column. And and then that's almost done. So the next book, which I'm really excited about, and I published a short version of of the first chapter, actually also in Catapult is an autistic girl's guide to horses. And so we never did talk about horses, but that's okay. And, and that's going to be all. Uh, we'll just have to have you back. I know. And we can talk all about. And horses. so that book is, <laughs> that one's going to be straight memoir, probably more, more straight memoir of um, being growing up autistic and, you know, a horse girl. And so that's going to be my first like memoir, which I've never written. Um, everything else I've written has been. Uh, so the mom interrupted book is like, you know, here's, you know, it takes on all these different things about parenting as a neurodivergent person and the thing, the struggles you encounter, like you have to go off your medicine when you're pregnant. Why? And what's that like? And how hard is it? And so it marries storytelling with research and helps people 
that way. Wow. Well, it sounds like you have just a couple things going yeah. on, just a few things on your plate. <laughs> well, I look forward to diving into the Hollywood Light series and getting into the rest of your books. And thank you so much for just everything. Your writing is beautiful. Thank you. I, I do need to, I need you to know that you're you are a great writer. And so anyone who can learn from you for any reason related to writing, they should take that opportunity because it would be invaluable. And Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Crystal. I appreciate it. No, it was my pleasure. Great conversation. Horses. We'll, we'll get back to you on that. We'll talk about horses next time. Mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> and that brings our time with Katie Rose Guest Prile, for now at least, to an end. I know we covered a ton of different topics and information, but I really hope that you found this discussion enlightening, maybe even comforting, depending on where you're coming from, and that you maybe learned something. As I mentioned previously, and as we talked a lot about in our chat, Katie is the author of many a book. If you're interested in learning more about the complete writers series related to legal writing published by Carolina Academic Press. You can find that information on cap-press.com. Faculty can request desk review copies through that website as well. If you're interested in taking a look at the Hollywood Light series, much as I am, you can find it on Katie's website. You can also take a look at it through Kindle Unlimited, which is what I know I plan to do. Her other works that we discussed of nonfiction are available through Amazon and other major retailers. So make sure you scoop those up. If you just want to stay informed on all of the wonderful work and things that Katie is currently doing, you can always learn more about her at prylenews.com and katiepryle.com. I know that throughout our talk, we referenced a lot of different materials. Those materials are linked and available as are Katie's websites in the show notes or description. So make sure you check that out. I hope that you'll join us again for our next episode. And in the meantime, please give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at law school lounge and we'll catch you next time.